Renouncing all dharmas, take refuge in me alone, and have no fear, for I shall absolve you from all sins and take you to the final liberation. Hari Om Tatsat. From our previous talks, we have seen how the discourse of the Bhagavad Gita takes place in a dilemmatic situation in which the hero Arjuna is faced with a problem which appears to defy a solution. Arjuna's problem is a 20th century problem, even though he lived 3,000 years ago. The solution which Lord Krishna gave him at that time is as vital and necessary to us now as it was to Arjuna, because the solution of the Gita cuts at the root of all problems. Hence the popularity of the Gita through the ages, for its message is renewable in the life of each one of us, whatever the country, race or creed we belong to. The purpose of the Gita is to fashion a god out of this mortal clay, to unveil the divinity within the humanity. For this it makes use of the three-pronged weapon like Lord Shiva's trident in order to attack the enemy which is within us as the Lord reminds Arjuna. This enemy is our ego and desire is its stronghold. This desire lurks in all the three aspects of the human personality, the body, mind and intellect. Therefore the Gita advocates the triple yogas of jnana or wisdom, karma or action and bhakti or devotion. These three are aimed at routing the enemy from the three personality angles, the intellect, the body, and the mind. When the body has been subdued with the practice of karma yoga and the intellect submerged in the atman through jnana yoga, the heart overflows with love for the divine so that there is no place in it for love of the world. This is the final victory over the enemy 
then is the divinity fully revealed and the purpose of the Gita fulfilled. The Gita, unlike other religious texts, does not say that this state of union can be achieved only after shedding the body. It insists that this state can and will be achieved even while living in this world and inhabiting this body. For what constitutes bondage is the desire of the mind for the fruits of action and not the action itself. And he who is free from desire is a jivan mukta, a stidapratnya, a karma yogi, a, bhak, a bhakta, as well as a gunatita. He is a liberated soul. The main attempt of the Gita is to effect a unity between the inner spiritual truth in its absolute real realization and the outer actualities of ma man's life and action. Hence was it given on the battlefield of Kurukshetra, where the hero of the day, Arjuna, was faced with a great ethical problem to kill or not to kill. Arjuna's problem is a modern problem and the solution is even more vital to us now than it was to Arjuna for the world is tottering on the brink of a colossal holocaust from which humanity has to extricate itself or extinguish itself. The teaching of the Gita is thus not just a general spiritual philosophy or ethical doctrine to be contemplated upon, but a practical application of ethics and spirituality in human life. It is a gospel of divinity to be experienced in and through our humanity. It contains the distilled essence of the Vedas, the Upanishads and the Brahma Sutras, which are the three cornerstones of Hindu philosophy. It extracts the essence of the dry philosophy of these three scriptures and makes a lovely symphony out of it. It has been rightly called the Gita, a song, the song of the infinite, beckoning the finite to the life divine. The mellifluous notes of the flute, as played by Lord Krishna, is intended to awaken even the most sluggish hearts and lead them to the divine life. It is a mistaken belief that spirituality and temporality cannot go hand in hand and that the yogi will be a misfit in normal life. The teacher of the Gita insists that God-realization 
instead of abolishing the law of the world, transforms it into the reign of divine wisdom. God and the world do not and cannot deny each other, since the world is an integral part of the divine. Each one of us can rise at our own pace out of our lower animal being into the full blossoming of our spiritual nature, which is our true nature. The result is an integral union of the individual being with the divine, which is the condition of the perfect spiritual life as well as the perfect worldly life. This union is to be achieved through the practice of the triple yogas of jnana, karma and bhakti meant to divinize the three aspects of man's outer personality. The intellect is to be constantly dwelling on his perfections, the body to be constantly performing action for his sake, and the heart to be overflowing in adoration of him whom it learns to recognize in everything, in the mountains, in the rivers, in the seas, in the stars and the stones. This triple yoga of the Gita is not something to be practiced at special times and places, but it is a constant communion with the Divine Beloved at all times. The psychology behind this is that the mind which has been conditioned from birth to notice only the differences in the world has to be reconditioned to see him alone in everything and therefore to act for him and to adore him in all things. The Lord of the Gita is not satisfied with a lukewarm love which grudgingly allots a small portion of the lover's time for the beloved. It demands nothing less than a 24-hour affair. The Lord is an exacting as well as an exciting lover. He demands constant contact with him at all times, waking, sleeping, dreaming, breathing, laughing, talking, walking, eating or sitting. The prize offered to such an extraordinary lover of God is that he becomes God. The personality takes on the likeness of that with which it is infatuated with. He who is infatuated with the world becomes worldly, and he who is fascinated by God becomes godly. 
This is our greatest dharma. And as we shall see at the end, our only dharma. Each of the 18 chapters of the Gita gives us a different yoga by which the mind can be made to achieve such a state of divinity. Let us take the first word of the first chapter. It is dharma. And the last word of the 18th chapter is mama. Within the boundaries of these two words, Mama Dharma or My Dharma lies the secret of the Gita's message. What is my Dharma? What is my duty? This is the question which puzzled Arjuna and it is also the problem which puzzles all right-thinking beings even today. Faced as we are with the conflicting demands of modern life and tossed in the stormy waters of the world, the purpose of which we hardly understand, the goal of which we are unaware of, we find ourselves unable to know what our duty is, what righteousness is, and what religion is. Very often, selfishness masquerades as duty. Haughtiness and pride go for righteousness, and in the name of religion are fought the bloodiest wars of history. What is the evolved man to do in such a situation? Modern man, faced as he is with the inhumanity inhumanity of man towards his fellow men is placed in the same conflicting situation as, as Arjuna. He does not know what his dharma is. The word dharma comes from the root dra, which means to uphold. Dharma is that which will uphold us if we follow the cosmic law. Nature supports him who supports her. But then this does not explain what our dharma is. The word yetna, as used in the Gita, has also to be understood before we can comprehend what our dharma is. Yetna is the ritualistic worship of the devas or gods. But the Gita uses it in a very special sense. Lord Krishna says that the Creator instilled the idea of yetna in each one of us at the time of creation. This is the idea of sacrifice or unselfish action. The Gita enlarges this into its fullest spiritual limits. It says that every action should be a yetna, 
every action should be a worship of the gods or of the God so that work itself becomes worship. This is the dharma of the human being. To offer every act as a yetnya to the supreme being. Thus acting, one will no longer be bound to the wheel of karma. Man interacts with creation at many levels, on the level of nature, on the level of society, on the level of his family, of his nation, and so on. On all these levels, he has certain dharmas or duties to perform. Dependent as he is on all these different levels of existences, he is bound to do his duty to all of them. Foster the gods and they will foster you, says the Gita. These gods or devas are the different forces of nature on which we are totally dependent. We have to foster or nourish them, for on them depends our very existence. He who takes without repaying is a thief, says the Gita. Man grabs from nature without even thinking of repayment. We cut trees, pollute the environment, mess up the ecosphere, tamper with the workings of nature and generally behave as if we are the masters of this earth and have no duties whatsoever to perform to that which is supporting us. Nature will naturally take her revenge and man continues to suffer despite the many amenities which science has provided him with. The devas are the subtle forces who are the presiding deities of nature and they control the laws which give us the fruits of action. If action is not done as a yetnya, we go against the dharma of the universe and therefore it will no longer uphold us. Our dharma is thus decided by the amount of dependency we have on other things and the type of relationships we have forged with them. A man is not only an individual owing certain duties to himself, but he is also a member of a family, of a society and of a nation. He is also a unit of the international world as well as of the universe and the cosmos. He has duties or dharmas pertaining to all these levels of existences. Since he is dependent on all of them for his well-being, thus the actions which come under his swadharma are those which he is obliged to perform to recompense for the services he has received from others 
and from the world. He depends on other human beings for his food, shelter, clothing, education, and protection. So he has a corresponding duty towards his family, the state, and the nation. He depends on nature for water, light, air, and food. So he has a corresponding duty not to pollute or spoil nature and to replenish what he has taken. Man as he is now is a weak and helpless being, totally dependent on many others for his comfort and even for his very existence. Naturally, he should be very careful in the performance of his dharma, for in that lies the basis of his own security and well-being. When action is performed as a yetnya, then one is doing one's dharma and also fulfilling one's role in the cosmic drama. This is also yoga, for yoga is living in harmony with all the levels of one ex one's existence. Man is not an isolated phenomenon floating around in the vast ocean of the universe. He is an integral part of it. The slightest happening in the universe affects us and everything that happens to us is reflected in the very stars. Life on this earth is not a chance phenomenon, a blind mechanism of nature, but it is a constant manifestation of the spirit. Living is not for the sake of the gratification of the ego, but for the sake of the Supreme Purushottama, the Cosmic Person. The living soul of man is an eternal reflection of this Godhead. Hence we have a dharma towards every living being, for we are closely re related and dependent on everything. The secret of action is one with the secret of life an existence. Action according to the dictates of dharma is for self-finding, self-fulfillment and for self-realization and not for the sake of its momentary fruits. The inner law and meaning of all things is decreed by the supreme will and therefore the perfect law of action which is our dharma, is to find out the truth of our highest existence and live according to it, and not in the mere following of an external rule or law of conduct, however ethical or logical it might seem to be. The greatest knowledge is the knowledge of one's own self, as also the greatest virtue. 
Hence was this knowledge given in the very first discourse in the second chapter. If knowledge of our true self is the greatest virtue, then it must follow that ignorance of it is the root cause of all our problems. Considering ourselves to be the mere physical body-mind complex alone, we mistakenly suppose our dharma to be confined only to the pursuit of our own selfish interests. And this goes against the cosmic law of yetnya. Action or karma proceeding from this faulty surmise is bound to lead us to further and further bondage. But act we must for that is the law of the universe. The Gita solves this dilemma by its admonition to act while established in yoga. Yogastha Kurukarmani, established in yoga, do thou act. Established in union with the self within you, one should act. And such an action is a yetnya. When Arjuna acts in union with Krishna, even the act of battle is turned into a yetnya. So every action from our grandest endeavors to the most trivial functions of our daily lives can be turned into a yetnya. For there is nothing trivial in the eyes of the Lord. He accepts everything if offered with love. The Gita holds out hope of salvation, not only to the great and noble soul, but also to the illiterate, the poor, and the weak. The Lord does not set the same value on our actions as man does. What is acclaimed as great or glorious in the eyes of the world may well be deemed worthless in his eyes. The worth of an action is judged by the amount of unselfishness which goes into it. If it is done as a yet now, or offering to the Almighty, even the most petty and insignificant action can be acclaimed as a sacrament. Yetnya, dana, and tapas are what constitutes a man's dharma according to the Lord, and these are obligatory on every human being whether he is a karma-yogi or a sannyasi, They are incumbent on him by virtue of his being a human being and a denizen of this planet, Earth. As has been said, any action done for the sake of the Lord, who is both transcendent and immanent, is a yetnya, watering a plant, 
feeding the hungry, planting a tree, keeping our environment unpolluted and clean are all parts of the universal yetnya, for he is imminent in all creation. Dana is the dharma we owe our fellow men. It might be in the form of material charity, but this should be preceded by the feeling of charitableness in the mind. Where this feeling is absent, the external act is mere hypocrisy. Tapas or austerity is the dharma we owe to ourselves. Disciplined action, cleanliness of body and mind, practice of brahmacharya or celibacy, moderation in diet. This is his dharma to himself. The great fabric of dharma stretches right across the different aspects of the human personality and enfolds the entire life of man, his personal, private, social and public life. A man who either out of ignorance or selfishness fails to follow this dharma is bound to suffer, for he would be going against the law of his being and therefore against the law of the cosmos. The path to human perfection lies in the faultless performance of our swadharma. This swadharma is incumbent on us by the fact of our having been born in a particular family, in a particular nation, and into this universe. It has to be performed diligently with determination and perseverance, however insignificant or tedious it may seem to be for it is the only path to our liberation. Faultless performance of one's swadharma is the supreme yetnya, the greatest offering or worship of the Lord. This is the universal dharma. Action which is based on this is the action which is determined by our inner nature. To follow this is to follow the law of our own development. To deviate from it is to end in confusion, retardation and error. Not only in our spiritual life, but also our social life. The spiritual evolution of the individual, as well as the stability of the society depend upon the correct performance of swadharma by the members of the society. Having said this much about the importance of dharma in all the preceding chapters, in the 66th verse of the 18th chapter, the Lord of Kurukshetra makes a dramatic reversal of all his former statements.
and tells his disciple to surrender all his dharmas to him and have recourse to him alone and he would carry him across the ocean of life to the shores of immortality. How are we to interpret this? We have already seen that our dharma is decided for us by the amount of dependence we have on other things, on family, nature, nation, and society. But the perfect man has no such dependence on anything. He has nothing to gain or lose in the world, nothing to know or learn, nothing to wish for or desire, and therefore nothing to be done as a matter of duty or obligation. Having surrendered all his dharmas into the capable hands of his divine charioteer, he has himself gone beyond all dharmas. He might go on performing his swadharma as an example to others, but not as an obligation, for he has none. He wants nothing and expects nothing, though he may still be prepared to give his all if called upon to do so, to know God, to act for him, and to adore him. This alone is his dharma. He faithfully follows this triple yoga of the Gita. It is not a yoga reserved for special times and places, but it has to be practiced at all times and in all places. It is thus the yoga of constant communion. Such a man touches the Lord at all times and in all places and in all things. He is never parted from him. He sees his beloved in every face, sees him in every glance, in every word and in every act. What dharma is there left for such a person? He wants nothing and expects nothing, for all his wants are perfectly fulfilled by him in whom reposes his very being. The whole world is his granary and the universe his home and the Lord of the cosmos, his only friend and benefactor. Dependence does he have on none. Like a child reposing in the arms of his mother, he rests in the arms of his beloved, secure in the knowledge that all his wants will be fully taken care of and that he has nothing to do. He is perfectly fulfilled and absolutely secure in the knowledge of his love for the divine 
and his for him. He is like the lotus flower in the muddy pond of the world, untouched and unpolluted. Thus being in constant communion with him, he has no dharmas, for the Lord of all dharmas is his private charioteer, who is directing the fiery horses of his inner life and attending to every detail of the battle with divine foresight and infinite power. In constant union with the Paramatma within him, he sits in the chariot of his body and is swiftly borne to the gory battlefield of life, unscathed and unafraid, for the divine charioteer has given his solemn word to absolve him from all sins and to take him to the goal of complete liberation. Ananya chintayanto maam yejana paryupasate desham nityabhyuktanam yoga kshemam vahamyaham I shall personally attend to all the needs of those who worship me with the yoga of constant communion. Hari Om Tatsad. Yeah. 
Bye.